0: Gracious God, speak to us in the chirping of the crickets, the rustling of the winds, and in your word proclaimed this day. Amen. According to its website, Fort Collins High School in Colorado is the only school in the nation to have a lambkin. A young lamb as its mascot. Back in the 20th century when Fort Collins was a hub for raising sheep and producing wool, it made sense to have a lamb as a mascot, but in 1981, presumably because the image of a prancing lamb had failed to strike fear in the hearts of their opponents, Fort Collins High School adopted Clyde, a rather fierce-looking lamb, as an alternative. But somehow, Clyde just didn't catch on. It never fully replaced that other image, and to this day, the school continues to use that comically gentle depiction of a lamb skipping as a representation of its athletic and academic prowess. Although a lamb is a common symbol for Jesus, there aren't a lot of religious schools or universities, clubs, or churches that choose it as their mascot. Lions, eagles, and warriors are the most common. Saints can be pretty fierce. Plenty of schools have chosen the crusaders, though that's become problematic of late. Ironically, Wake Forest, originally a Baptist university, became known as the Demon Deacons. And Duke University, a Methodist school, is home to the Blue Devils. I went to a seminary where the fighting friars took the field. And Earlham College has its hustling Quakers. But I don't know a lot of athletes or fans who cheer on the lambs. After all, why would anyone want to be a part of a team that is led by its mascot to slaughter? Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist declares as he sees Jesus approaching. Anyone want to follow him? Now, with the benefit of 2000 years of hindsight when we hear John inviting us to follow that lamb of God we know enough about that label to know that it doesn't just mean an easy victory for our opponents but i wonder what John the Baptist had in mind when he called Jesus the lamb of God for us The Lamb of God is the one who is sacrificed on the cross at Good Friday, but is also the one who is raised into victory at Easter. Christians can't separate one from the other now that we're on this side of the resurrection As you come forward for communion, if you come all the way up to the altar rail, look at one of the central cushions right in the middle of the altar, and you will see an image I promise you will recognize. It's the most familiar depiction of the Lamb of God. It's the picture of a little lamb holding, sort of, in its hoof a long pole at the end of which is attached the flag with the the red cross of St. George right in the middle of it. That flag which is technically called a vexillium. I had to look that up. That flag is a Christianized version of a Roman imperial military banner. Think about that. Instead of a legion of soldiers parading around a symbol of their military might, our little lamb of God, the one killed by the empire, yet raised to new life by the one true God, stands there holding a sign of victory. But how did John the Baptist know anything about cross and empty tomb right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry where this gospel lesson takes place? When John called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, how did John understand that to take place at all? Now, the gospel according to John, the one we heard from today, doesn't tell us a lot about John the Baptist's message. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us a better sense of that. And those three accounts of the good news make it pretty clear that the Savior, John the Baptist, was getting us ready for wasn't really a sacrifice for sin. The kind of Lamb of God we probably have in mind Remember what John proclaimed? He called upon the people to repent so that they could be ready to receive the one who would come to baptize them with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's job as the forerunner was to make the path clear and straight for God's anointed one to come and bring the full power of God's reign to the earth. The great reign reordering of the world, the flipping of everything upside down which God's people had long been waiting for, that was John's job to get us ready for that. So when John is calling Jesus the Lamb of God, it's pretty hard to imagine that he had this little gentle image waiting to be killed for the sake of God's people. It turns out there are some ancient Jewish texts, the Testament of Joseph, and the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, which aren't found in the Bible, but they were written about the same time as the New Testament, and they describe how God's people wait for a lamb to come and trample on all of the enemies of God's people. Imagine that. It seems likely that Christian influencers have shaped that text to make sure it conforms a little more closely to the story of Jesus, But the texts still give us the sense that back in John the Baptist's day, God's people were waiting not only for a lamb who would be killed, but for a lamb who would defeat the enemies of God's people. It's that sort of lamb, the victorious lamb that John seems to be waiting for. But how do we fit that image of the triumphant lamb, which isn't really much to be found in the Old Testament, with the other images of lamb that we know so well from Scripture. Think about the other times a lamb of God is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. Think about how the prophet Isaiah depicted God's faithful servant as a lamb, one who stands before its slaughterers without opening its mouth, like a sheep before its shearers, is dumb. Remember also in the book of Exodus, how God's people were called to slaughter the Passover lambs and paint their doorposts and their lintels with the blood in order that when God came to deliver them in a mighty way from slavery in Egypt, God would see the blood and know to pass over their homes and not strike their firstborn. Maybe you remember that in Jewish practice, whenever offerings were brought to the temple each day, lambs were a part of it. But curious enough, lambs weren't usually included in the offerings that were designed to forgive sins. Now, none of those things sounds a lot like what John had in mind with his preaching But you know what? If you start to put them all together, the victorious Lamb who gave himself for God's people in order to be a sacrifice for sin and yet is raised to victory, well, that sounds a lot like Jesus. So what makes John the Baptist's label for the Lamb of God so interesting is that John got it exactly right, even though he didn't really know what he was talking about. That's good news. The Lamb of God is the one who takes away the sin of the world through his death, yet is also the one through whose death, death itself is defeated. We worship that complicated, multifaceted, altogether Lamb of God when we approach the altar and come to meet Jesus. We are here to worship the one who gave himself for us in obedience to God, the one who was slain for our sins, and yet the one who stands victorious over the forces of evil. Before Jesus, no one could have seen those things coming together, not even John the Baptist. And yet we know that the one who was slain is the one who is victorious and the one who is worthy of all worship. We can only make sense of that in our worship. When we come to this table at Eucharist and hear or sing the familiar words of the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we bring together synthetically those disparate threads that otherwise never could have been woven together into one understanding, one Lamb, one and yet, here we find ourselves beholding the atoning sacrifice, the paschal lamb, and the apocalyptic victor all together in one Christ. But the best news of all is that we don't have to be able to see all that with our minds in order to pursue it with our hearts. If John the Baptist didn't know what he was talking about because he couldn't understand exactly how Jesus would become that Lamb of God, then surely Andrew and Simon Peter, his brother, didn't really understand either, and yet they followed him. For those who would be a disciple of Jesus, it is enough to answer the invitation to come and see. Rabbi, Where are you staying, they asked. Come and see, he said to them. Sometimes we are drawn to Christ for reasons we can't even speak with our mind. Sometimes we're looking for something, yet we know not what. And the promise to us is that in Christ we find our heart's deepest longing. Whatever it is that brought you here today, whether you're here searching for a long-awaited victory or desperate for a glimpse of reconciliation or looking for an example of unwavering faithfulness, whatever it is, you will find it in Christ Jesus even before you know it. Jesus is the one who permits us to dwell, to stay, to remain with God. We don't need to understand that with our minds in order to be faithful to that invitation with our hearts. Thanks be to God. Amen.